for like maximum drama. He needs to get everybody excited about relativity and say, look, there's this great question we're going to answer. And then he leaves everybody in suspense. Welcome to What the If. Very exciting. We're jumping in. This is a two-parter. And uh, last week, we had begun a spectacular What the If. So compelling. Well, the, the, the origins of it is the incredibly compelling book that uh, Matthew Stanley, you have published, written and published, and that is called... Einstein's War, Colin. How Relativity Triumphed Over the Vicious Nationalism of World War I. And in that book, you learn the unbelievable, incredibly vivid, visceral tale of, of what Einstein was doing before he, before he becomes famous. He's working on all that stuff really hard that will eventually make him famous. But he's in Berlin. He's starving. He's uh, being watched yeah, as a politically suspect person because he's a pacifist. So he's got all kinds of trouble. But what the if? World War One never happened, which means we're going to say he's living in Berlin. Mm-hmm. He's not starving. He's still working on his work. He had sent a young astronomer out into Russia, Russia to, to photograph a solar eclipse. Einstein is proposing that what we feel is gravity is actually the bending of space. You know, that empty thing, the thing where there's nothing there? <laughs> Einstein says there's something there. It can do stuff. And it can be bent, that big things bend it. And when you feel gravity, that's what you're feeling is bent space around you, pushing you back. Say what now? So... He said, if, you, if this young guy from that can take a picture, he, during the eclipse, he will see how the space around the sun is bent. But look, the yep. stars will appear to move mm-hmm. as, as if you were looking through curved, curved Yeah, through like glass, warped glass or something. Or yeah. water in the bottom of the pool and stuff. So uh, World War I doesn't happen. Good things for many people. Many people. <laughs> many people. Millions of people. Right? Millions of people, right? And, and I should say, and at first for Einstein, too. Right. He's like you said, he's he's happy and fat instead of starving and cut off from the world scientific community. But uh, so that's good. So but he gets this, um, you know, not the result he wants from the eclipse. So he can't go out and say relativity has been proven right. So how, did, how does that play? In other words, he so he actually. He, what happened in, in, in reality was that eclipse, they were never allowed to photograph that eclipse. Is that right? That's right. The astronomers were arrested as spies at the start of the war. Crazy. Mm-hmm. So here's a world where they don't get arrested as spies. So good for it's good for their record as well. Yeah, their record, right. <laughs> Freundlich's record stays clean. But they bring back a different number than Einstein wanted. So yeah, he looks at the photographs, right? Mm-hmm. And he would see he would have seen that the stars did not move, or that actually that they moved too much. Too much. Right. Yeah. Uh, Einstein would, pr- it's not just that it doesn't match with his theory, but it means there's something like really wrong with his theory. 
It's not just a tweaking problem, but there's something deeply wrong with it. So space was even more bent by the yeah. sun than Einstein expected. That's right. He had, in the early version of his theory, he underestimated how much warping of space-time you would get. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, and, totally. And dramatic. Yeah. The question then becomes, what would Einstein's reaction to this be? Right? So there's a couple of possibilities when, when you make a prediction and uh, it doesn't match up. You've got, you've got a few options, right? So one option is you say, my theory is wrong. Uh, I'll tweak it. I'll, I'll, I'll adjust some values until it matches the observation. And this is called sort of an ad hoc fix. You, you change up your theory until it matches observation. And that gets done a lot. Another move you can make is to say that the observation was bad. Uh-huh. And this was the very first time anyone had ever tried to test this. So that would be a reasonable strategy. Einstein says, eh, we weren't able to, to make a good measurement. We'll, we'll just drop it. He blames somebody else. That's exactly, right. <laughs> or you can torpedo your whole theory and start over fresh. Uh-huh. He has not published this theory, or he has? That is correct. He has not. Well, I should say he's published preliminary versions of it. That's probably the right way to think about it. So if this had happened, if the first astronomers he had sent out to take a picture of a solar eclipse to try to confirm his theory had come back and they looked at the results, they would not have published. I think that is probably right. They would have been They would. I, th- I think Einstein's most, most likely reaction would just be to say the observation didn't work. Sorry about was, the money, folks. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then he's like, well, I guess I, I can work on my theory more, but I've got to wait for another opportunity to test it. Is somebody else going to give Einstein a big chunk of money to do this test again? Probably not in Germany. People outside Germany don't really know him. No one's really interested in putting resources and time on the line for this weirdo. It's one thing if you ask astronomers, as one can do, to just to make an observation at their observatory. Right. Yeah, that's no big deal. All that's lost is time on that observatory, which at some cost and, you know, wouldn't look good. But this is like, they had to carry these things, tons of equipment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's months of traveling time, uh, weeks of setting the equipment up, and then months of calculation afterwards. It's an enormous investment. And sometimes you have to travel to, I mean, they were really lucky that there was an eclipse close enough, that there was an eclipse within Europe, that is, in, in Russia, because it could have been in the middle of the Pacific. And moving your whole observatory out there is really hard to do. And physically dangerous. Yep, very often, right? I mean, these are, uh, this is a long time before Expedia trip insurance, right? You're right. just hoping to get there alive, you know? Yeah, you're taking a train, and then I imagine you're taking horses. Uh, often, or often just people power. Because, you know, you might need to be on top of a mountain or whatnot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I would be surprised if anybody is willing to put up money and effort to test Einstein's theory, uh, at least anytime soon, uh, after the, the 1914 test. And does he make the big revisions in his theory in 1915 that eventually give him his final version of the equations maybe i think uh i suspect uh, i suspect relativity might get pushed to the back burner for him 
right? Oh, it's okay. Not, it's but not quite worth the effort of finishing it up. What was that one thing you just you just mentioned? Does he? I wasn't quite clear what that was. Oh, right. Said. So yeah. So in in our timeline, in 1915, Einstein realizes he made a mistake in his 1912 version of the theory. Right. So in reality, he actually just by looking through his own work or something Mm -hmm. realized because there was no pictures ever taken he realized and so he he was relieved i'm guessing that there had (laughs) well that's right because one of the things he notices when he when he fixes his mistake is that his original prediction of the bending of light was too small in the no world war one timeline that's what they actually look for and fail to find but that's but Einstein realizes that prediction was wrong in 1915. So in that sense, he was really lucky that the war interrupted the observation. Here's a, here's a question. So if if in our as in our alternative history, there's no World War One, his associate Freundlich gets to take pictures of the eclipse, mm-hmm. comes back, and they look at the pictures and they're like, "Wow! Not only is space does space appear to be bent." curved around the sun, but it's curved a lot more than I thought. Is that not revolutionary in and of itself? That this It's only revolutionary if you see it through the frame of already thinking relativity is correct. Remember, these folks are trying to establish that relativity is right. So if you think relativity is true, as we do today, then more bending is more exciting because there's more of the weird stuff. I guess what I'm saying is what, what else would have Nobody knew that there was any bending at all. Right. right. Yeah. So you would just attribute it to a bad measurement. Because when you do an experiment, nobody ever does an experiment if they don't think they know what the answer is going to be. Right. That is just not done. And sometimes you get a different answer than you expect, and that tells you something important. But much more often, when you get the wrong answer, you assume you screwed up the experiment. Right. Right. Or maybe some crazy outsider would have said, there's something going on. I don't think it was a bad measurement. We have no idea what it was. It might just be that the sun has this weird effect. That's right. But nobody listens to those people. Right. right. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, if you're you're in high school and you do a lab experiment in your class and you get a different answer than you're supposed to, nobody thinks you have revolutionized science. <laughs> they just think you screwed up. Right. So I suspect that's where we would have been at with, with Freundlich. So, maybe Einstein fixes his theory in 1915, maybe he doesn't. Even if he does fix it and publishes it in November 1915, like he did in our timeline, I still don't think many people care. It's just, there are not great problems floating around in the scientific world that relativity is needed to solve at the time. Like, people are excited about Einstein's work on atomic theory because that was a real problem. People did not know how to talk about atomic theory, and then he fixed that problem for them. But there's no problem that relativity is solving. So this is amazing. What you're saying is, and there's something deeper here we'll have to get to, Mm -hmm. but you're saying that, suppose, so there's no war, and Einstein does finish relativity, as he did. Mm -hmm. He publishes it, and because there's no war... In this scenario, nobody really pays attention. Right. So the, the question you should now ask is, what, how, how did the war what change happened? that determination, yeah. right? Yeah. So what happened is um, Einstein hung out with his buddies. 
is the answer. Is that Einstein had a posse. Uh, specifically, remember those pacifists he was hanging out with in the Netherlands? The, the people he just liked hanging out with because they were pleasant folk? Those are the folks, the first folks in the world to learn general relativity. And one of them is uh, this astronomer named uh, Wilhelm de Sitter. <laughs> and de Sitter, um, after one of Einstein's visits, decides, you know, I'm in a neutral country. Einstein can't write to other people, but I can. So he writes a letter describing Einstein's new version of general relativity and sends it to London, to the Royal Astronomical Society. Right? Einstein couldn't do that because of the blockade around Germany. And also, he just wouldn't have thought of it. Einstein was just a bad networker. But de Sitter sends this letter describing Einstein's new ideas. And it gets opened by the only person in the United Kingdom who could understand Einstein's theory and was willing to read about it. And de Sitter knew this guy. This is unclear to me whether it was Locke or if de Sitter knew it ahead wow. of time. So this, this guy is named Arthur Eddington. And he's secretary of the Royal Astronomical Society. He's an astrophysicist. And it's important that he's the one who opens this is because he's a Quaker, which means he's a pacifist. Again, this seems orthogonal to the story. Exactly right. But I swear <laughs> it's not. You remember back at the beginning of the story, after the war started, all the scientists go into their political camps. So English scientists refuse to look at anything coming out of Germany unless you're a Quaker pacifist astronomer like Eddington was because he thinks the war is awful. So he thinks it's great to be looking at German theories. Wow. Wow. So, right, it, uh, it, it isn't just that they're not just pacifists and they're not just burying their head in the sand. In fact, it's the right. opposite. It's saying, they know we will continue to reach out. Exactly. Right. To, and to that's ordinary that's a, people. It, it, these these hmm. battles are between kings and queens and stuff. And the ordinary people, why shouldn't we be able to? Yeah. And specifically, even scientists, right? Science is supposed to be w above all of that kind of thing, uh, right? They're, they're these higher virtues that they're supposed to follow. That, that was Eddington's argument. And then to sit her, Additionally, tells Eddington that Einstein is also a pacifist. Ah. So Eddington is like, ah, this is perfect. I've got this revolutionary theory put forward by the one German scientist who, who defies all of these wartime stereotypes, right? He's the one person in Germany refusing to, to be on the side of the war. And Eddington realizes that relativity is this kind of way to make a bridge across the, across the trenches, almost literally, and sort of repair the damage from the war. So he's doing something no one else has done. And I don't even know before or since has this ever happened. He's taken, in his mind, he's taken a very difficult scientific theory, revolutionary, radical theory, Right. And wrapped it in with culture. Yeah, with with politics and culture. Right. He's uh, he's deeply concerned about these political and social questions. Even religious. Exactly right. Religion yep. in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really important that Eddington was a religious man. Wow. So Eddington, but remember, Eddington can't just write to Einstein and say, "Send me your papers." He has to go through to Sitter. This is the era of uh, submarine warfare. Ooh. So, for instance, letters between Eddington and De Sitter go awry sometimes because ships get torpedoed. In the English Channel. Yeah. 
Wow. Eddington kind of has to teach himself relativity. So there are there are letters, for instance, discussing relativity, mm-hmm. perhaps having great insights yeah. that potentially could change the course of human history in and of themselves. And those letters are now, well, they're waterlogged and gone, I assume. But yes, they're sitting on the bottom of the, the bottom of the English <laughs> Channel. Yeah. Although I guess they kept copies, knowing mm-hmm. that these things went out. Some of them, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we have some of the letters uh, among these folks. Mm, mm. So Einstein is in Berlin starving, mm, mm. trying to keep himself alive. And he doesn't really, uh, De Sitter tells him that he wrote to Eddington, but Einstein doesn't know who Eddington is, and Eddington doesn't, Eddington doesn't really know who Einstein is either. Neither of them are particularly famous. Um, but Eddington decides he's going to uh, essentially put all of his weight behind relativity and Einstein for the, not just for scientific reasons, but for these political and religious ones as well. So he decides that he's going to be the one to actually do the test at the next solar eclipse. He's going to take a telescope. Yeah, he's going to go do it. Because uh, he had observed eclipses before, so he, he knew how to do it. But he, remember, he's in the same way that Einstein was surrounded by all these people pro-war, so was Eddington. So he had to convince people to give him the money and the time and the resources to do the expedition, and, and probably more importantly, um, not throw him in prison. And here's how this goes. Uh, World War I, it's so, an era... So Eddington is in danger of being thrown in prison. That's correct. In England. Because he's refusing to fight. He's a Quaker. Um, and it's a, a war of mass conscription, so everyone has to fight. Mm. Uh, he refuses to fight. He says, I, I will not be drafted. Mm. Um, and one of the possibilities that could happen when he made that declaration was they just throw him in prison. That's technically a uh, refusing to follow military orders. Mm. And lots of Quakers have exactly this done to them. They're, they're locked up or they're sent to the front and they essentially do slave labor. Um, some of them are tortured. Whoa. It's a really bad scene. Some of them are tortured. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not good to be a pacifist. By the British. Generally, yeah. right? Yeah, okay. that's right. We're, we're used to thinking of the Brits as these nicely tolerant people. Um, but wartime, people, people do bad things. Yeah. Uh, so Eddington has to figure out so even if he wants to sort of change the world with this new scientific theory, the first thing he has to do is make sure he's free to do that. So there's lots of maneuvering that goes on. Short answer is Eddington has a friend in a high place, the astronomer royal, a guy named Frank Dyson. And Dyson, as the name suggests with astronomer royal, has a lot of political pull, and he is able to get Eddington an exemption for the purpose of going to observe the eclipse. So that so he must have been in a tight spot too. If he's yep. he answers to the king, or that's a good question. Technically, yeah, yeah. But anyway, astronomer royal, he's prominent. Yes, he's he's, he's the most important scientist in the country. Yeah. Wow, and he's going to let this potential criminal, as as far as the society that's right. is concerned. Yeah, Dyson has to stick his neck out too. Wow. And I think the the key there is actually sort of personal friendship between Eddington and Dyson. They had known each other for a long time, mm-hmm. um, and Dyson is, is is willing to to put that out there. So, uh, so the war ends. Well, rather, the fighting stops in November 1918. 
So Eddington is sort of has been waiting to go do the eclipse, which is planned for May of 1919. I, I say planned, but that's just when it happens, right? You have to you have to be in the right place. So he didn't know if he'd actually be able to make the trip because of the war was still going on. It just wasn't going to be possible. So we get the armistice in November 1918. The blockade stays on because there is not still a formal uh, peace treaty yet. Oh. So Einstein is still starving and trying to deal with like socialist revolutionaries in Berlin and trying to, you know, keep the government from collapsing and this, at the University of Berlin. It's, it's, it's a crazy scene. So Einstein has nothing to do with any of the planning so for is, the expedition. Is the Kaiser deposed? The Kaiser res, uh, resigns. Yeah, he, he really? flees. Mm-hmm. He flees. Wow. So really, yeah. it's like, uh, this is the real revolution in Germany. It is a real revolution. Yep. Yeah. Um, and many people are thinking it's going to go the way of Russia. Remember, it's just a couple years after the Russian Revolution at this point. So, uh, so Einstein, as a socialist, is suddenly like totally in favor with the new government. So he's he's very pleased about that. But it's but I should say it's total chaos in Berlin. So he's not doing any science. So Eddington's efforts to set up the expedition are all on his own. He gets Dyson to pony up some money. They get a government grant, and they decide that they're going to send two expeditions. Actually, two people to Brazil, two people to Africa. Um, so Eddington and his assistant Cottingham go to Africa to to observe the eclipse. And one of the important things, remember, uh, Eddington wants not just a good scientific result, but he wants to change people's minds about nationalism and prejudice and kind of the, the hatred that comes with the war. Wow. So he, he isn't just internally saying, I would love to bridge the nations and show that war is whatever, science yeah. is above politics and all this kind of stuff and, and, and do this thing. He's going with the notion that if he can uh, confirm this theory of Einstein's, mm-hmm. that it will be published along with poetry in a way, or that right. it would be it will, some sort it will of be, uh, pop right, it will phenomenon. Be a, great, a great moment of international reconciliation this is what he's looking for. So one of the things he has to do before the expedition is a PR campaign for Einstein in Britain. Because remember, nobody knows who this dude is. So he has to get everybody excited about relativity so that when he comes back with the results, they're going to be all excited about it. Now, this is a guy who's in some ways way more ambitious than Einstein, or at least socially. (laughs) That's right. And certainly much more adept, right? Yeah. And yeah, and Eddington eventually becomes one of the great, he has to teach himself how to do this. He's a deeply shy person, generally. Like, there's all these stories about how, you know, people sit next to him on trains for hours and he doesn't say a word. But in, but if he's going to make this work, he has to become one of the great public speakers of the first half of the 20th century. And he does. He's, he becomes the, the Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson of the day. Really? He's the, the, he writes the best-selling books. He gives the lectures. Once there's radio, he's, he does the speeches on the BBC um, about science. And he this probably is all, would have been a podcaster today. This yeah. is before he goes out? That's to- right. Yeah, because he, he knows that uh, he needs to, for like maximum drama, he needs to get everybody excited about relativity and say, look, there's this great question we're going to answer. And then he leaves everybody in suspense while he goes to travel. Holy cow, this is amazing. And <laughs> so it's like I he he creates he basically is a self-made Carl Sagan. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. 
solely for the pur- I mean, this is not a small purpose, but solely for the purpose of getting people interested in a theory he hasn't yet proven. That's exactly right. And he's putting mm-hmm. himself out there in public when a lot of people think he should be in jail. So what do, mm-hmm. do people forget that? Or so that's a that's a tricky thing. I mean, one of the, the the answer here is that he's since he's successful, everybody's excited about him. If he had failed, then bad people would remember him very differently. Interesting. Right? So uh, so he goes to the ex- to the um, the eclipse in on May twenty ninth of 1919, almost exactly 100 years ago, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Does he have a uh, celebratory launching of the ship? Or? Well, kind of. I mean, it's still right. This is He's on essentially the first passenger ship going south after the war ends. What he's excited about is that there's no rationing on the ship. So he hasn't seen sugar or a full serving of meat for years. Wow. So his letters home from the ship are amazing. He's like, there's full sugar bowls and as much tea as I can drink. Wow. <laughs> this is great. Wow. So that's what he's really excited about. And then the, uh, uh, the it's this island called uh, Principe off the, 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 off the uh, west coast of Africa um, where they end up going. And it's this um, old chocolate plantation of all things right. is where they set up the equipment. And it's a cloudy day on May 29th, so they're not quite sure if they're going to get the images or not. And the eclipse lasts about six minutes, which is really long for a total eclipse, but Mm -hmm. it's a very short period of time to gather all the information you might (laughs) want to have about the nature of the universe, right? Yeah. And this is back in the days when you had to develop photographs. Kids listening to this, it used to be the case that you didn't know what a photograph looked like when you took it. You had to wait until it was processed chemically to see. So that was a thing he had to do himself. So he had to actually develop the photograph in the jungle. And then once the photographs were developed, he had to sit down and measure them very precisely and then had to do calculations on those measurements. Now, I am going to jump ahead a little bit. Go for it. Yep. So uh, since we're, we're short on time, but he... Um, he discovers that his his observations, which are very difficult to make, but they do match Einstein's predictions. That's right. They match up. And he keeps this, so I should say, by November of 1919, he realizes that the, the evidence is in favor of Einstein. So he and Dyson set up this special meeting where they say they're going to release the results, but they still haven't told anybody what it's going to be. So they set up this, this, this great drama at the Royal Society in London at which they're going to announce the results. And remember, Eddington's been working a public relations campaign for about a year at this point. So that means there's reporters there ready for the dramatic announcement. So he announces that Einstein's theory has been confirmed and you know everybody jumps up out of their seats and there's, there's huge arguments and excitement. And the next day, the Times of London headline is Revolution in Science describing this event. And then the day after that, that story gets telegraphed to New York City. And in America, New York Times has the, the headline, Lights Askew in the Heavens. And this is the, the, the announcement of this result is the second time Einstein had ever been mentioned in the New York Times. Okay, he was a totally unknown person. Nobody knew who this dude was. But because Eddington and Dyson managed to set up the the publicity just right, 
everybody is super excited about this, right? Oh my God, Newton's been dethroned. Uh, it's this, it's you know, English scientists testing a German theory so soon after the end of the war. Science can rise above all political constraints. Everybody is super excited about this. And Eddington focuses all the attention on Einstein as, as this example of, this, of, of the, the, the perfect disembodied scientist who comes up with this abstract theory that manages to float above the war. Ah, so that's, that's generous of him, too. It is, yeah. To, to make sure that the... the um, and so, and how long after... So people had been celebrating in the streets the end of World War I. Yes, it was, almost, it was almost exactly a year after the armistice. One year later. Yep. And so the world is still in really bad shape. The, all the soldiers have come home. Certainly, yep. you know... Spanish flu has come through. Everything, yeah. the world is still in a really bad place. And here comes this scientific theory mm-hmm. that nobody really understands, but the newspaper and, and all the leaders are saying, this is, there's this incredible... <laughs> That's right. It's changed revolution. everything we know about the universe, right? And, and the mystery is actually an important part of the story, too. The, the fact that the theory is so hard to understand makes Einstein even more exciting as a figure. So if there had been no war, right. there's no... And, and we, we wind all the way back. Yep. Sounds like Einstein still would have communicated with De Sitter. De Sitter could have still communicated mm-hmm. with Eddington. Yeah. But even if all that had happened, without the background of the war, Eddington doesn't have any particular interest in relativity. Really? Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't need, without the war, he doesn't need a pacifist example. He doesn't need to make this political statement. So he really would not have been interested in relativity. Only in the very general sense. So like, oh, okay, cool. He certainly would not devote the next years of his life to testing it. So this is another thing that nobody understood how revolutionary the theory was. Exactly. Which right. is like huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a sense in which maybe it would have been too revolutionary. That is, without the war, nobody has the motivation to really do a deep dive into it and understand what it means. Uh, the way Eddington was motivated to do that in our timeline. And might for Eddington, there have been another thing, which was that the current theories about space and, and especially gravity belong to Isaac Newton, who literally was an ancestor of his at Cambridge. Yep, that's right. Yeah, that's. I think that's less for... Uh, Eddington uses that for dramatic purposes, I uh-huh. should say, right? So one of his, his brilliant moves is to present the test at the eclipse as Einstein versus Newton. Yeah. So uh, it's not just we're testing to see if Einstein is right. It's testing to see whether Einstein is more right than Newton. Right. So, so Einstein, immediately Einstein is on the same level as Newton, even if they had gotten a negative result. So right, right at that, that is incredible. That's the moment, I guess, the moment, or yet another moment, but a huge, usually key moment is Einstein, uh, Eddington, the British astronomer, mm-hmm. plucks this little Jewish academic in pacifist in Germany from being just another scientist. Just, yeah, just one more physicist. Scribbles, yeah. yeah, on paper and stuff, and raises him to the level of Newton at, in a small pantheon of scientists. Newton, mm-hmm. Galileo, exactly, Aristotle. Right. handful. Um, and within, so within like a week, People around the world know Einstein's name. 
Does it's Einstein incredible. know that he's being compared to that he well, will be compared to Newton before it this comes is out? kind of a this is kind of a funny thing is it, that um, the the blockade is just coming down around Germany so news is just trickling in so Einstein hears about the results just before uh, the newspaper reports but he's to- and he's really excited about it but he's totally unprepared for the fact that all of a sudden every reporter in the world wants to talk to him <laughs> so everywhere he goes. Um, there's somebody waiting. They want his his autograph. They want his picture. They want an explanation of the theory of relativity. And his correspondence in this period is just hilarious because he just gets more and more exasperated. He's like, what is going on? I don't understand why everybody cares about this. Uh, you know, when he's traveling, his his wife sends him a letter describing how much mail arrives each day. Like, you know, it's another bucket full today. And this had just never happened before, that a scientist had become famous so suddenly and so dramatically. Or even, did Einstein ever, did Einstein or anyone around him, even in his most egotistical moments, think he would be elevated to the level of Newton? No, no, he was uh, totally not in his head, nor in anyone's head. I don't think it was... Uh, I mean, Eddington must have thought about it because that was his strategy, right? right? All comes down to Eddington. The Eddington is the one. So, so we could have a bunch of different what ifs for this that keep Einstein from being famous. So, it could be no World War One. Right. Maybe we have World War One, um, but Eddington gets thrown in prison and can't ah. do the expedition, right? Yeah. There's a lot of, or uh, De Sitter has an off day, or his letter happens to get torpedoed on the way, and it doesn't arrive in London. Yeah. That's right. There's lots of ways Einstein just becomes one more middle-aged professor in Berlin. Just like failures, here is a success, which depends on an incredible chain of failures yeah, or crazy successes, events, right? yeah. in a way. And um, when it comes right down to it, though, he is on the level of Newton, isn't he? He, yeah, totally. Yeah. So but, but I should say, similarly, like, like Newton gets a similar treatment back in the 17th century oh. um, of being put forward as this grand ideal of science. It's not an accident when someone becomes so famous that their name is, gets an ism added to it, right? Newtonianism, Darwinism. Ah. Uh, it's because somebody worked really hard to make that person famous. Oh, interesting. And often not the person themselves. That's right. And I think that's the, the case in, in all of with Newton and Darwin and Einstein. It was because of uh, their friends. Oh, uh, and Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking somewhere, right? Yeah. Well, maybe Stephen Hawking's editor for Brief History of yeah. Time. Yeah, well, Discovery Channel and <laughs> yeah. you know, all those things. So, yeah, that's right, his publisher, his book. Wow, fascinating. So not only should we appreciate Einstein himself, what Einstein discovered, which we can still talk about more in, in more. Yeah. <laughs> it would be interesting to get into that. But Arthur Eddington, you should know about, and the whole chain of events. All This is all happening in your book. Yeah, that's right. This is so when I say Einstein's war, it's not that he's in the trenches with a gun, but it's that the scientific work he's doing is inextricably tied into the fortunes of the war. Um, And we would think about him and his ideas very differently, if not for that mechanized disaster from 1914 to 1918. And so, uh, lastly, he must... Was he grateful to Eddington? Did they become friends? Like, he didn't know Eddington before. 
That's right. They had never met before. Um, they actually can't even exchange letters until December of 1919. Uh, and they don't meet until 1921. It's a long time before they actually meet up. Um, and then, yes, they finally do become friends. Amazing. What a story. What a story. Yeah, did all this work for this guy he'd never even met. Isn't this amazing? That's, that's one of the things I find so extraordinary, uh, is the way Eddington devotes his entire life for years to to putting Einstein forward when he had never met him. You know, and, and he was seemed like he was very convinced that this theory was right. Yes, that's right. He put all that on the line. Amazing. Mm-hmm. amazing. So, so since we're, we're on that, I'll give a plug to your earlier book, which is all about Eddington. Oh, sure. Yeah, if you're so inclined. Um, it's The title is Practical Mystic. Uh, colon, religion, science, and A.S. Eddington, and particularly looks at this this interesting notion of a deeply religious scientist uh, and what that what that meant. If it's not an easy, it's not easy to find a copy of it these days because it's out of print. But you know, good luck. Oh yeah, yeah. We should get it back in there. Einstein's War coming out or is out now? So Probably it's on, it's on the cusp. Uh, or it is out now, so look for it in your bookstore. Einstein's War by Matthew Stanley. And next week, um, I'd love to. I'd love to actually continue this because I'd love to. I think nobody really. And I always, I have come a little bit in my understanding of what relativity is, but it's a, it's a, always a, it's a mystery. All right, yeah, let's go for it. We'll do something on that. And this is the month, uh, May. Well, when we're recording this, May of. 2019 is the 100th anniversary of when Eddington went to Africa and made those observations. Is that right? And published. That's right. Yep. We are the centenary of uh, knowing that I, knowing that Einstein was a smart guy. Amazing. Amazing. So may the 4th be with you and may the relativity be with you too. <laughs> So next week, who knows what happens? We will go into the emptiness that is bent. Whoa. (laughs) We will bend the emptiness. And we will scream into the emptiness. What? What? The The F. 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 F